And another reminder that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It gives you everything you need in one place, and it's free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools, so you can record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. And they'll distribute your podcast for free. So you can hear it on Spotify, Apple, Google, and many more. Just like us here at BraveMaker. Make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app today and go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. Hey, Tony Gapastone here. I'm solo hosting the podcast today, but we've got a really cool guest and our correspondent. It's our first uh, podcast from correspondent Irving Ruan. Irving is on our team along with John Fusco, and we've got one or two more that are out in the world that have uh, been tasked with finding some great stories and interviews to share. So really cool that Irving interviews his friend and fellow artist all the way from New York, Jeremy Newen. And Jeremy's got a story about how he braved his own way into the cartoon and writing and comedy world. And so you'll hear that whole story. So stay tuned for that. Make sure you check the show notes for all of the links and things that are coming up. He's got a show, if you happen to be in New York, that you can check out in October 2019. But make sure you always go check out our page, bravemaker.org. We are a nonprofit and we exist on your support. So if you can give 25 bucks a month, that will help. That helps us in this podcast. We're trying to pay editors and producers and we can only do that with your help. And also at bravemaker.org, you can see the screenings. We've now expanded into Nevada, California, which is in Marin County over the Golden Gate Bridge. So we've got a screening on Tuesday, October 15th, and then in Redwood City on Wednesday, October 16th, and filmmaker Daniel Carslake, who was just on the podcast a couple weeks ago. So check that out. Please come to our film screening, share this, like this, comment. You know people find the podcast as you rate us and give us um, some reviews on all the podcast platforms like iTunes and Anchor and all that kind of stuff. And if you think you should be on the podcast, we would love to talk with you. If you've got some music, we only have had like one or two people share some of their original music, but bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. We're looking for it. We want to support you as you brave your own way. It is not easy. In fact, Jeremy, the featured brave maker here on this podcast, man, he gave me such hope. Even though he liked being a poor artist, he liked living in you know, a small apartment with bed bugs and eating ramen, it seemed. I do not like that. I keep telling my wife, I can't wait to someday not have to worry about paying rent. It's hard. It is really tough, but it's so worth it. It's building your story. You are that story. Remember, brave stories change the world, and this is all a part of it. You being able to tell the journey of how you got to reach these goals and how you got to bring your art to life. So it's such a, a part of who you are and who you're becoming. So embrace it. And enjoy Irving Ruan and Jeremy Nguyen. Brave stories change the world. You are the story. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Brave Maker Podcast. I am Irving Ruan, and today I am sitting down with the one and only Jeremy Nguyen. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hello, I'm great. Thanks for having me, Irving. Of course. I, I am looking very much forward to this conversation. Um, yeah, this so, is going to be fun. So today... I have Jeremy, and for those who don't know Jeremy, Jeremy is an illustrator. He's a cartoonist. He used to do comedy at one point in his life, uh, but now he very much does most of his work in the visual arts. Jeremy, uh, how would you describe the kind of work that you do nowadays in your artistic career? Uh, well, yeah, I'm very glad I don't do stand-up anymore, <laughs> first of all. 
Um, yeah, no, my work is, uh, I, I, I mostly do a lot of, uh, comedic work. That's where I have my outlet. Um, and it's comedic because I mostly do like New Yorker cartoons that are, uh, that have a joke to them. And then, um, the other illustration work I do, uh, for like editorial and board games and books and stuff, um, they sort of tend to lean towards uh, comedic and fun and just poppy visuals. Um, and yeah, that's that kind of work that's really interesting to me right now. Yeah. And for people who aren't familiar with Jeremy's work, uh, just to kind of give you an idea, you know, Jeremy has been responsible for producing his own uh, comic strip called Stranger Than Bushwick, which is super funny. I've been very lucky to read that. Uh, but a lot of his work and a lot of what I think people know him through is, you know, through his cartoons and his comics through The New Yorker, which uh, audiences, if you haven't had a chance, do check it out. We'll link his work in the show notes, obviously. But, you know, he's incredibly funny and he has a very distinct voice. And we'll definitely talk about that a little bit later on. But before we kind of start exploring the comedic aspect of your comics and cartoons, you know, I want to start, you know, from the beginning in terms of Jeremy Newen, the artist, right? I mean, mm. you've obviously been drawing for a long time. Walk us back to the moment in your childhood when you sort of fell in love with illustration. Like, what was that one moment when you realized, ah, I think I could do this? Mm. Oh, oh. Um, well, if, I, if we went all the way back, it'd be obviously like childhood when my brother and I would like, he would, we would draw together all the time. Um... I don't know if I would call that illustration back then. <laughs> I would just call it drawing and doodling weird superhero characters. Um, yeah, it, uh, I wasn't sure that I was going to do it for the rest of my life, but I felt like that I would still be drawing into my adulthood. Right, right. So with that, I mean you know, there has to be a clear impetus, right, that would push an artist through. Because we all know, you know, art is full of rejections, full of hardship in a way. Obviously, it was a mere flirtation in the beginning. When did you start taking it seriously? What, did you? When did you start seeing, I guess, your first quote-unquote success that, you know, things could actually happen for you? Um, there are kind of two points. One, I... In, there was one point where I was, uh, do you remember chain letter emails? <laughs> I do remember it. They went pretty viral at a certain point, yeah. Right. You, you would get, you would log into your whatever AOL or Hotmail account, and you would get these dumb chain letters that were like, you need to send this email to 10 friends or else something bad is going to happen to your dog. Uh, and I thought it was, the, you know, everyone thought it was the dumbest thing, but you would you would still see your friends sending these emails to you. And so I kind of created like a fake one, a fake parody chain. Because some of these are like, here's a story of Alice and Alice did not send this email and blah, blah, blah. You know, she was about to get married and then her husband drowned at sea. Some weird like dramatic horror story you know probably like the ring or something um happened but I, I i kind of wrote my own like fake ones and then i started uh writing like they were over the top and obviously comedic but then i would start writing like song fake song lyrics basically parodying weird al but like you had to read it to the tune of a song that you know um, and then after that, I, you know, I, I guess I was getting into what, you know, newsletter <laughs> territory. Um, after that, I, I wrote my own web comic, uh, with just like classmate friends of mine and they seemed to enjoy it. So, um, and I was like doing it in like MS paint, really. I was like scanning in bad, you know, uh, gel pen inked <laughs> uh, comic strips and then i don't i don't even know how i scanned it um, probably through like a fax machine uh 
And then it came out all pixely in MS Paint because I didn't know what DPI and resolution was. And I colored it in with just like the paint bucket tool. And then I would go in and fix tiny little white pixels that were uh, left behind, um, you know, one by one. Uh, and then I would upload that. Where did I upload that? I don't think DeviantArt was a thing yet. So I might have set, just uploaded it to like a photo bucket or like Flickr or something. Yeah. Uh, so so that's where I've... I've, I've reflected upon why I was so drawn to like comedic comic strips. It's probably because I was doing stuff like that. Um, and then the reason why I was able to like pursue this after high school was that a, um, there was a, something called the congressional art competition and that's, uh, held in most state districts and so my so it's like government run uh, uh my representatives office sponsors these events and if you win this congressional art competition your in in your district which is made of like four or five high schools um then your art could be hung in this hallway that connects like the Senate building to the House of Representatives building. I don't even know the words. It's like state capitol and the and the Senate building. There's some hallway so that people don't have to go and cross a bunch of freeway streets to get to different buildings in D.C. Um, so I won this thing in my junior year, and my parents sort of something, you know, flicked uh, uh, on for them where they were like, oh, well, if other people are <laughs> rewarding him publicly, then maybe we should allow him to pursue it. That's super, super cool. I mean, I can definitely understand that the external validation can be an incredible boost, I think, for, for any artist. But it sounds like from your experience, right, certainly the, I think, opportunity to amuse your friends right and i think so much of comedy is about the reaction that other people have because you obviously don't do it in a vacuum you want you need to have that feedback it seemed like that was one of the joyful i guess driving forces that kept you kind of saying oh not only is this something that i actually enjoy but people are actually enjoying this was that a contributing factor that really kept you going that people could respond immediately to your work Oh, yeah, definitely. And then, you know, you would link it to them or something on AIM and just, like, watch the ROFLs come in. <laughs> so stupid. Oh, my God. I can't believe that I AIM was yeah. a validating. <laughs> Before Twitter and Instagram, we were just waiting for those raffle copters. I definitely remember that door sound that AIM would make, you know, when someone would sign yeah, on and everything. So definitely. For, you know, illustrators and cartoonists out there, right, who are either starting out or are starting to see sort of their, you know, perhaps first signs of success, you know, obviously you started at a fairly young age. Do you have uh, any particular set of advice for people who, you know, maybe they haven't shown their work to the world, right? Like how, mm -hmm. what kind of advice would you give them if they want to overcome that fear to really say, Hey, you know what, maybe I can put my work out there. Like, how did you get over that hump when you first started publicizing your work? Yeah. Uh, let's see. I don't know if, when I recall back to those chain letters, I don't know if I even cared to get a response because you can't really get a response through email unless someone physically replies to you. And I think people didn't read it because, I mean, I feel like I didn't get any, you know, emails back, replies. So part of me is like, did anyone read it? Did they think it was a real chain letter and just delete it? Or what happened? So I don't know if I really even thought of like, should, you know, sh how do I overcome some sort of fear of rejection from a public when I doubt anyone was even reading it? I was kind of just doing it for myself. I made like 10 of these, you know, taking whatever like 
Lil Romeo song was popular and making up fake lyrics for it. Um, yeah, I, the advice I would give someone is really, it's, I, it's twofold. It's one, either just do it and don't give a shit. (laughs) Don't give a shit. Uh, can I curse on this? Uh, yeah, don't, who cares? Who cares? There's so much other content out there. I don't know if it matters that if, if you get validation or not, especially with this age of like, you know, I hear about kids who are like, they like try out styles on Instagram and then they delete the artwork that doesn't get as many likes. And part of me is saddened by that, but also I understand this is a commercial industry. You want to, you know, have some sort of validation of someone telling you, uh, that this is the right direction to go. But, you know, I've, I've always stuck with, you know, not making artwork that I didn't believe in. And I feel like, um, I've, I've, uh, keeping those principles, knowing your principles of what you will and won't do is really, really crucial to your success. Cause I mean, yeah, it's like people are doing fan art, so they can get views and hits and likes and reblogs on, I guess, Tumblr 10 years ago. Um, and like, for me, I never really enjoyed doing fan art unless there was a parody quality to whatever I was doing. So it's like, I guess if I'm a fan of something, I want to be able to make a statement and not just do artwork because I like how the characters look. So being able to do something where I'm actually saying something more than I'm a fan of this series um, was really helpful because then it just led to like, oh, well, here's some actual new content that isn't just more of the same things that are already out there intellectually, you know, all this other intellectual property is out there. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really great advice, and thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think certainly from my perspective, as someone who doesn't illustrate, I certainly consume illustrations on Instagram, you know, yours included, and I think I've seen those kinds of behaviors uh, manifest where, you know, something doesn't get many likes if it's a cartoon or whatever, people delete it and people experiment. And while I, I think to your point, I do understand that, I think it sounds like it's so important for anyone starting out to really understand and question what their artistic principles are, right? Because I think in moments of doubt, it sounds like it's those principles that are going to keep you going, right? Like what is important to you? Like if you don't actually like doing fan art and you're doing it because you're going to get vanity likes, that's not what's going to keep you going in moments of doubt, it sounds like. Exactly. And it sounds like you stuck to your most important things and those what helped you in moments of doubt. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, some of these fan art creators might I've I've experienced a lot of them, um, a lot of people who genuinely do love fan art. But uh, when the industry changes and they go to conventions where they they might not enjoy doing fan art as much, they find a a much harder struggle Trans, trans transitioning into doing creator-owned work because they have such huge fans of their fan art and they don't want to buy some of their original creations. Um, and yeah, and so so that's like a challenge that I've heard other people um, take on, or, uh, but it's not something I've had to experience yet just because I don't do fan art, but yeah. Yeah, I definitely can definitely can understand the importance of right. holding and understanding and really realizing what's what principles are true for you. Totally. And what, I feel like even if I did fan art that people will just know that there is it's not there's no heart in it. So I don't wanna like get into that territory and then fail automatically and then what that's just gonna validate why I didn't do fan art in the first place. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. So, you know, moving on to something I think that, you know, obviously has played an enormous role in your life is after when, you you know, art school, after you attended, what is it, Savannah School of Art and Design? Right. It's the Savannah College of Art and Design. uh, You can call it SCAD. Yes. And you studied illustration there, correct? 
So they have an illustration major, but I studied a uh, what a major uh, a department called sequential art. And so that covers like comic books, storyboarding, uh, doing children's books, um, you know, doing uh, visual development for animation. So quite the uh, humanities, I guess, of of illustration in a way it encompasses a lot. Right. Uh, so so illustration, I think, is more about storytelling in one image, and then learning the techniques of your chosen materials. I think they have like a wider range of materials, like you know acrylic and gouache and graphite. But sequential art, they really taught us more about what doing comic book illustration is like. And that's mostly doing thumbnails and pencils and scripting out your comic and then inking on top of your pencils and coloring. And then, you know, we had classes on lettering uh, digitally and by hand. And then, um, you know, and then we had great electives where we were designing our own mini comics and pitching to graphic novel publishers, um, which didn't happen, I think, in the illustration uh, major. So there's definitely a distinction between the two, and it was super worth, you know, having uh, having a comics program over an illustration program. Right, right. So for listeners, I think, who, you know, are interested in going more into art or are interested in studying art more in a formal capacity – you know, what are some things you would recommend pe- people keeping in mind if they're thinking about doing an MFA or actually for many of our young listeners who might want to study art formally in school? What are things, you know, that maybe you wish you had known before applying that you should, you know, say, hey, here are the actual realities of art school that would be useful, I think, for them to know? Yeah, yeah. So I went to school at a very interesting time because they were teaching a lot of Marvel and DC uh, uh, economy, like just just that industry. Um, and, you know, image comics were like considered indie back then. And now image is like everyone's favorite publisher because that's where like The Walking Dead is coming is come from and Invincible and all these creator owned projects that are exciting and you get to own all the IP, um, that's kind of where the industry was changing towards when I was at school. Um, And then there were also, like, Scholastic was getting on board with Bone, and Raina Telgemeier and Gene Yang were, like, the superstars at Scholastic. So there was a group of people who were a lot of, like, the, we called them, like, there was like three groups of kids at SCAD. It was like Marvel and DC superhero guys. And then there were the manga kids who were influenced by manga, who were not sure where their careers were going to end up. But they latched on to places like First, Second, and Scholastic as outliers of the industry that became mainstream like today. And then there were indie people who were just like, I think they were a bit more fluid in terms of, like, maybe I can do, like, a weird indie book for Marvel and DC, which there are comics out there where they just did hire indie people. Um, And then they could play around in this handmade mini-comics realm. It's sort of like doing it for the art versus, like, doing it for the industry. So I would say, you know what, I don't really know what schools are like today, but I'm still a part of that world of saying, you know, that mindset of saying, if you, if you think you can get a lot out of school then go for it, if you don't think you need it, there's a lot of resources online. You can definitely self-teach, you know, teach, teach it all to yourself and not have that influence of the commercial world that schools might have. Um, definitely my school. And, uh, and yeah, yeah. And there was something else I was going to say about schools and not going to school. But yeah, there's a lot of resources out there. I'll just say that. So if you don't need it. Oh, oh, I was going to say that you, it, 
schools are really good for meeting other artists. <laughs> yes, which is a very, I think, important thing that, you know, I certainly can empathize how, like, as a writer, oftentimes I feel, oh, I don't need to be around other writers. But then at the end of the day, right, it is oftentimes other writers who consume my work. And I think in the same way for you, it's not just people, but also other illustrators, other cartoonists are also consuming. You're creating a community. And it's important to, I think, get exposed to that early on. And school is a great conduit for that. Totally. I mean, it's just like a thousand kids with tons of different styles and different influences and a lot of the same ones. And then you find like your tribe of people. And when you do start going out to like conventions, then you have like a group of people to go to conventions with, share tables. And then if you do end up making a career out of it, then you have this built-in group of people who you already know are killing it and doing it and or struggling just like yourself. And then you can bond over that struggle. Right, right. So after school and after obviously meeting a ton of people, you ended up in one of the greatest cities on earth, New York, and <laughs> there you, you know, really went in on a lot of your, you know, talent on illustration and cartooning, but to my understanding, you didn't start immediately cartooning, right? You were working, walk us through that journey initially when you landed in New York, what were the first few years like? Uh, okay, so yeah, I land. Uh, I graduated in 2011. I spent my summer looking at Facebook and watching all these people have cool internships. <laughs> yeah, especially like because like comics isn't a great. It, it doesn't really have that infrastructure of like internships that you get a cool job or whatever. I was looking at all these like graphic designers and game developers who are working at. I don't know, like Naughty Dog, uh, you know, the people who created Last of Us. I know some, you know, a lot of my classmates went on to work for um, Pixar and I guess Leapfrog is like a educational video game company for kids. Um, and then I had all these fashion friends who were like interning at Ralph Lauren. So, so, and, and most of them were taking place in LA or New York. And I was stuck at my parents' house, just wondering why I cannot be able to get a job like my peers are. Um, and part of me just knew that I kind of had to go somewhere and do it. Um, I was lucky that, you know, my I have some family in Los Angeles, so I interviewed for a few like uh, regular jobs out there for some like nonprofits, um, and then I interviewed at some places in New York. I went and stayed with like a friend who had just moved there, uh, and in it, they they moved in like the beginning of August, and then I showed up on my birthday two weeks later. <laughs> to their apartment, stayed on their futon, interviewed at a bunch of places. Um, and then if, you know, if something felt okay, then I would just stick with it and see what else happened. Um, I started interning at a comedy club. Um, <laughs> you know, I was doing stand-up at the time and I was doing open mics at, as, at the same time and having this internship you know, paid me enough to survive on this futon. Um, and then while I went out and did open mics, um, yeah. And then very, very luckily I stumbled upon a listing for a job, um, at a comic book company. Uh, they sell, they sold like digital comics on the iPad. Um, and yeah, I got a job there and I worked there for like four years and it was fantastic. I loved it. It had like startup culture to it, which was like starting to become like the popular way of conducting business, I guess. Um, just that startup world, Silicon Valley was like happening and I felt really excited to be a part of it at a comic book place. And it was really fun because I got to hire like my friend whose futon I stayed on. <laughs> yeah. She was like about to take a job at a diner and she called me up and she's like, 
you know, I had moved out at this point in Nova, uh, November, went through. I had a seasonal job at the NBC Experience store, which is like a gift shop at 30 Rock. And then I got this job at this comic book store. And then in March, my friend was like, what are you doing? What's up? I'm about to take this shit job. Uh, I don't know what's happening. Uh, and then I got her a job there, which was been super fun because then we became like best friends for the next four years. Um, and then she brought in like another friend of hers from Savannah uh, who I knew, who I used to, you know, wait tables with in SCAD, at SCAD. Um, and so it was like there was three of us. Then I brought somebody in. It just like we just like multiplied because the startup culture was like, we'll pay you a thousand bucks if you get us a new full-time employee. And we are like, we'll tell all our friends. And then we were just meeting more people who went to like SCAD's comic, uh, SVA's comics program and CCS in Vermont's comics uh, degree program, you know, RISD people we met and Pratt kids we met. And then we just opened up our circle to, you know, more and more comics people. It was a great place to work. Yeah, I love stories like that. And I think the thing that stuck out is, you know, I think a lot of people, certainly in our age bracket and younger, you know, I think we have this mentality where we're always trying to calculate or plan or say, we got to do this first and this and then that, you know, in order to achieve the success we imagine. And hearing your story, you know, it was obviously you had your passion, you had your skill set, had your education, but it sounds like some of the opportunities and certainly, you know, we'll get to where you are now in your career, but, you know, initially it was so serendipitous in a way. And I think what people need to, I think what's hard to often realize is how difficult it is, right. To make it as an artist and yeah. And Mm. just really the serendipitous nature of it all where, yeah, a lot of times, yeah, you may be incredibly talented, but you know, the difficulty of finding a job and where to go and just by the off chance that you happen to know this person have to be there at the right time. I mean, you know, all the different odd jobs you have. I mean, that is like the classic sort of artist story and you live through that. How do you think, you know, sort of the randomness of all of this has, I guess, informed, I guess, your view on art now as, you know, now that you're much more mature in your career and so forth, would you do it completely differently or do you think that was very informative as an experience? Oh, completely informative. I mean, you know, I went to school thinking I was going to be a graphic novelist and that, you know, I would have book deal after book deal, just like some of my heroes. Um, And, you know, that wasn't happening. You know, I would pitch things around um, and just, you know, I I wasn't I wasn't shit. I wasn't anything. (laughs) You know, I had no like life experience to write and draw a graphic novel about. Um, So, you know, know, the thing about school is that, you know, sometimes if you are eager and want it hard enough and you are talented, it's still not enough to get you a job or get you the work you want. Um, especially in a declining industry or just a small, small industry. So yeah, um, it really framed my, reframed my ego of just like, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm getting nowhere and it's not going to happen for me as quickly as I thought. Um, and you know, I saw my classmates the same way. They were like, I'm delivering pizzas. I'm living at my parents' house and I'm, you know, to go into conventions and trying to save up money to pay table fees. And, uh, that was, you know, everyone had these shit jobs and no one wanted to talk about them on social media. <laughs> um, because they, cause even, you know, some of their friends were doing well and winning all sorts of awards and stuff. Uh, so yeah, it was very, very, it's very exciting to finally like get a job in the industry um, you know, and with all the, uh, good and the bad that came with that. Um, but yeah, there were a ton of odd jobs that were just like, really, I'm going to go to this event and draw caricatures of rich, drunk people who 
Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the story of one, like, one weird caricature event I went to. I guess I didn't really draw the people. This company was, like, and it, like, it was before Kickstarter, and they would, like, crowdsource invention ideas. And, like, you could pitch an invention idea, then their team of product designers would, you know, look at all the angles and design all these products um, based on, like, the comments below this person's pitch. And they're like, oh, you should, you should create the, a wire that connects blah, blah, blah. I don't even know. Some industrial design company. They had like an event and I went, they hired illustrators to come and draw people's ideas. Um, and they invited a bunch of like rich people who will like to go into parties, I guess. That's how I could describe it. My first year of being in New York was like all these people went in like nice blazers and their rich girlfriends all trying to drunkenly pitch me their shoe invention or their washer-dryer invention. And I sat there for like three hours with two other illustrators, you know, trying to shove lobster, free lobster rolls in our faces because we were like starving. We were like, we're working here for three hours during this evening event and they have lobster rolls, so we have to eat that, right? <laughs> That's like the best meal we're going to have for the next five months. Um, yeah, and so getting in that, like, you know, that paid like half my rent and I was, for three hours. And I was like, all right, I guess if I just find more weird shit like this, then I can live and pay off my tiny apartment in Bushwick. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think it's, just one of those things where, you know, obviously with your huge success right now and just, you know, how much your work resonates with the public consciousness, you know, people don't, I think, really know how hard it was, right? I think for you to really push through that. And I think oftentimes we lose so many artists early on in their career because it just gets really freaking difficult with like a capital oh, yeah. D. And, you know, as you were going through that tough moment, I'd be curious actually to, to ask you, like, what is it that kept you going i mean it was obviously tough um but was it truly your love for it or was there something perhaps a bit different on the emotional perspective well i love like looking back on it i loved that tough era i loved being fucking dirt poor and on the edge of like having to move back home i loved it because so i was in bushwick which was very fun to see like a bunch of the emerging arts stuff happening. And, you know, I was on, I, I still live in Bushwick, but back then I was like off the L train and I would be able to go to all these great free comedy shows. And that itself was just like the bet, you know, going to those comedy shows would like save me every week. And then I would, you know, sit in my cold apartment because <laughs> I was too scared to pay for heat and I didn't have furniture. So I would like sit on a milk crate that I found outside. That was like my drawing chair. And then I would sit at like some dusty old table that I picked off the street that my roommates were like, do not pick, grab any more furniture because we just had like a crazy bed bug infestations you know, there's like, it's like bed bugs are going around this neighborhood all the year previous to me moving there. Um, so they're like, don't pick up any more furniture. Um, you know, I had soup and spaghetti a lot. I loved it. It was so great. So like, uh, what was your question? I mean, like, I, I definitely loved that era of my life and it was just exactly what I expected and getting fighting to get out of it, but also knowing that I can survive that was really, really helpful. Cause like, you know, I, I definitely cried about like, yeah, I, I lost like my, my retail job at 30 rock. And I remember my parents, I called my parents right when I lost it. Cause I thought I was going to be like, I thought, you know, they had to fire like 20 people out of the 40 they hired seasonal. Um, and then I was like late one day. And so that marked me off for being one of the people who got cut. I was great up until then. Um, and I remember calling my mom and she was like, 
it's okay, honey, you can always move back home. And I just started crying because I was like, I am not moving home. <laughs> I don't even want to hear that as a backup plan because that's not my backup plan. Um, yeah, I, I, knowing that I could survive off of having like no money, it, it really kind of took that fear away. Um, you know, from, from ever, if that ever happened again, that I would be able to get through it. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. I mean, that sounds intense. And I think for listeners out there, you know, if you can, if you can weather a milk crate and a bed bug table <laughs> for your artist studio, uh, take it from Jamie oh, yeah. to survive anything. So let this Mat- be a lesson. Ma- yeah. Totally. Mattress on the ground. You'd walk into my apartment and there's like no other furniture in the living room. And then you'd go to my bed and there's like three pieces of furniture. And you're like, holy shit, did these people just move in? It's like, no, we've been here the whole time. We just don't, we we can't spend the money on furniture. Like, why would we do that? So, Yeah. And I think that's, so cool to see you know how how much i think certainly you've grown in your artistic career but also in the furniture department you know since yeah. then. so it's good oh yeah i've got a bed frame now it's really nice <laughs> <laughs> um so from, from that right obviously you're working at this you know really cool startup-esque comic book you know kind of company Right. And then, you know, after that, to my understanding, that's when you started getting more into like really just comedy centric cartooning and illustration. And if I remember correctly, that's when you started submitting your cartoons to the New Yorker. I'm curious from your perspective, what, you know, guided you to start doing that? And like, did you get rejected? What was that like initially for you? So what happened actually was I was working at this company and after about like six months, it felt like I was dedicating too much time to the company and not enough to my art. Um, but I was probably, looking back now, I was probably figuring out what I was going to do my next work about. Um, you know, I was, I was doing, I was trying my hand at like that Tumblr game of posting artwork and that wasn't getting me anywhere. Um, but but this this I'll, I'll tell you this this was around the time like BuzzFeed was really big and listicles were happening. Um, and the format of listicles were like pretty funny. You know they would post like here's ten gifts of why every, what every twenty year old you know. Uh, needs to survive or whatever or what every 20 year old in Williamsburg needs and there was this kismet of that of listicles being a thing and then seeing the show Portlandia where it was sketch comedy about the emerging hipster scene and the thing that and and have putting those two things together I saw these listicles with a visual element of these gifts, and I was like, those are just comics. They're basically comics. The writing, you know, the weird little caption that they put above every gif or meme. And I was like, oh, these are just comics. I'll do a comic about what it's like living in my neighborhood, Bushwick, where, you know, things are supposedly happening, you know? So I paired myself up with this um, neighborhood news blog run by uh, my eventual friend, Katerina Hybanova. And, you know, they covered, like, res- new restaurants opening up or uh, new TV shows that were shooting in the area, everything, you know, bars. I think they had, like, a column on dating and relationships at some point. Um, and so I just asked the founder if I could submit some comics or I, I even just tried doing illustrations at first. I was like, you have a you have a new bar roundup? Let me just do the header image for it. And then they asked me to write, and I was like, nope, that's not happening. I'm not a journalist. Uh, so I was like, but I write, have these comics 
ideas? Can I submit these comic ideas to you? And they were like, yeah, sure. You know, it didn't cost them anything. They paid me like 20 bucks or a drink here and there um, whenever they had parties. And then I just did a comic every week while I was working at this day job. Um, and they sort of got started to spread, you know, especially as Bushwick Daily grew itself. Then they had a newsletter that email people would sign up on email. And I didn't realize that, like, journalists on Gothamist or New York Magazine were signing up to read Bushwick Daily News. Um, and then they would link out to us later, which was really exciting. I was like, oh, this 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 blog linked to the comic or this blog linked to the comic. Um, yeah, it was great. It was really that it was really exciting getting to know writers and journalists, especially being in a world of jaded illustrators who were like, I don't really care to look at your artwork anymore. <laughs> or or when they do, it was all critiques. But when you showed them to people not in the illustration world, like journalists and writers and comedy people, they were like, oh, here's somebody who's not competing with me either. And so it's just like, we could appreciate each other's work like honestly, because there was no, um, you know, there was no egos getting stepped on, or there was no like, you know, you're critiquing my heart and soul as an artist. <laughs> um, so it was really nice, and they were really supportive, and you know, they've all gone on to cool things too, um, which is nice to see. Um, but yeah, it was nice to be around people who are not in illustration so that I could have that supportive feedback. And, uh, you know, uh, one thing about having my work on Bushwick Daily was that, yeah, all these art directors and news, news, uh, news outlets would sign up for the newsletter. And there was one art director uh, at Thrillist who was a fan of my work, and she worked in editorial and was able to hire me for like, you know, she was able to give me editorial work for like the next two years, you know, doing three to four illustrations every couple of weeks. And I was able to do that while at my day job and it was fantastic. And I got my hand on editorial illustration, which I'd never had really that much experience before. Um, and I don't even know if I'm that good at it still. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it definitely gave me the confidence to finally go freelance, um, having them as like a regular client. And then I left my job. Yeah. And that must have been a pretty big move because, you know, obviously, you know, the day job is important, right? I've heard people say how having a day job frees artists, right, to work on things that they want to do, whereas it's often harder if they are not, you know, if they don't have a day job, they don't have the stability, and then oftentimes they may not be able to choose their work. And so, yeah. Uh, and obviously, you know, with that whole experience with the lobster and the characters, <laughs> you know, perhaps you didn't really want to do that, but, you know, that is like the other right. side of the coin. And those came like every so often too. So it's like even if you could, even if you want did wanted to do them, they'd come like once a year. Yeah, and the day job is like it was a great job, and I got to hang out with a bunch of other artists who are in the same position. But I think having a day job five days a week all year round. That's really rough. And plus the job, the kind of job I was in, it was production. So there was a lot of overtime and that takes away from doing artwork anyway. You just get home tired late and then you, what, you maybe do your laundry and cook yourself, cook dinner. And like, that's your day and you didn't touch your drawing at all. You're just burned out. So, like, five days a week, and then what? You get your weekend. Maybe you draw a little bit on Sunday. You're just recovering all week for the next week. And it, and once, you know, I of course, I got, grew tired of it. I was, I was having to say no to freelance illustration um, so I could do overtime at work. 
And then I felt guilty if I said no to the overtime to go home to work freelance stuff. Um, so yeah, so going freelance, you know, I had a ton of friends who were in the same job as me who eventually wrote their own comics and left, or they started working on other projects and left. And it was just like, I think it was always in the cards for most of us. Um, so it was kind of, uh, easy to see the transition happening when it was already happening for your coworkers. Um, the other, the, the difficulty was then, you know, most of them were like working on like Adventure Time comics or Steven Universe comics or writing their own IP and, and coloring other people's projects. The challenge of doing it in this narrow field of comedy was that I didn't really have a model for it except uh, a grad friend of mine, Ellis Rosen, who got into The New Yorker. And he got in because his friend Sam uh, got him in. And, you know, s- finally seeing that as a place that I could apply to and submit my, submit my work into was super exciting. Because um, I've, you know, I've read them this whole time I was in New York. I was reading them. You know, my roommate subscribed to The New Yorker. It's really funny. I had a roommate in Bushwick who subscribed to the New Yorker and he is so not, he was a, he was a, I want to say he played the flute. He was a, he was so in the world of music that he had no understanding of the visual world. So I'd be like, did you get the New Yorker in? And then I'd show him the covers that I wanted. And he was like, Oh, I didn't know that they had a different illustrator every issue. And I was like, you're crazy. How are you not in this? How can you not even notice that there is a different? It, it blew my mind that someone so not in my world could totally disregard this medium. Um, and yeah, so I would grab his issues and read through the cartoons, of course. And yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, so yeah, and then. Yeah, getting the confidence from from doing Stranger Than Bushwick um, uh, was really integral to me going in and submitting. Right. And for people, I think, you know, obviously the New Yorker is very well known. And, you know, oftentimes people often just, you know, go through the magazine for the cartoons. I mean, it's such yeah. a central thing. I mean, the magazine started... <laughs> really as a humor publication. So the cartoons are, you know, vital to the DNA of, of the, of the history from, you know, your perspective when you started submitting and everything. I mean, for people on the outside who obviously have no idea how it works, like what is the cartoon submission process? Like, tell us more about like how do cartoonists pitch to work? What's that like? And for people who might be interested, you know, what's kind of how they go about it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so I started when the former editor, Bob Mankoff was still there. He announced his retirement four months into me submitting, but while he was there, he had this open door policy, which was kind of standard back in the sixties and seventies and kind of went away when the internet came. So he started, uh, back this tradition of bringing, uh, sample artwork and your cartoon ideas as sketches into the office physically, handing them over and getting his feedback. Um, and that continue that that tradition still continues with uh, Emma Allen um, today. Uh, but Bob's sort of style was a little different. He was a little rougher and critiqued harder because he was more interested in buying cartoonists versus buying cartoons. So even if you had a funny cartoon, he might not be interested if you were not going to be coming in week to week. So I went in knowing that um, it might be many weeks, many months, possibly even years uh, before I'd sell a cartoon. So I like prepared myself before I quit my job. I was like, 
I'm going to draw like 50 cartoons so that I could bring 10 in the first week, 10 in the next week. I would have all this buffer room so I could draw more <laughs> as the weeks go by. And uh, yeah, he wanted, he wants to see 10 cartoons and, um, and they all have to be different ideas. Uh, and you can go over that, but you really don't want to go under eight cartoons. And then maybe they'll buy one at the end of the week. Um, and then if not, then your cartoons are garbage and you got to start all over again. It's crazy. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, that, that still continues today. Even the people who have been published dozens and dozens of times still go in just to check in, uh, with the magazine and our editor and see what's happening. Um, and just hang out. It's a really nice way to get face to face time. And, you know, if you're, you can, you know, we're, we're still artists and we're still growing. So we have our, our ups and downs and, and our editor will tell us that, or our editor will, um, figure out other ways for us to still keep contributing to the magazine, whether it's through daily shouts or a daily cartoon, um, or a sketch pad. Uh, there's a lot of avenues in which you can, uh, express yourself. And that's, that's really given me a nice place to, um, practice my single panel cartoons and then my weird um, short form comic stuff. And then also to collaborate with uh, a lot of great writers um, and do out of the box work that I would have never thought of doing on my own. Right, right. And for, you know, listeners will obviously link to Jeremy's uh, portfolio and his cartoons on the New Yorker website. But, you know, to kind of give people an idea of how I've interpreted. I mean, you definitely have a quite range, you know, quite a range of cartoons. I mean, you've done cartoons about, you know, Waldo, you've done cartoons about government, like, you know, computer hackers, you've done <laughs> cartoons, you know, about anthropomorphic, like animals, like stuff like that. Like you have quite, of course. Range. Um, and they're all super funny. Do you have, and maybe this is a bit of a weird question. Do you have a favorite cartoon of yours that you just really enjoy doing? Like that maybe you're willing to share how you got the idea for this cartoon and the caption that you sold to the New Yorker? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course we have our babies. Um, and the one you mentioned, the Waldo one is definitely a favorite. So the thing about New Yorker cartoons is that there's like a million of them and they play off a lot of cliches like, most people know about the Desert Island cartoon and and the uh, Grim Reaper of Death as a cartoon. Definitely the therapy cartoon where someone's in a on the couch talking about their feelings or their problems to a therapist. Um, but then there's also some like cliches out in the world. Uh, you know, maybe it's Sisyphus pushing up a rock, or I guess that's more of like literary cliche. Um, you know, there's other cliches that have come into this world, like freelancers working in coffee shops or mansplaining guys on dates. Um, those are like a few modern cliches, but then there's also like a subset of cliches like Waldo or doing stuff about Disney even, you know, um, or some, anything about pop culture and film and TV. And there's a handful of very good Waldo cartoons. <laughs> um, I think most people are familiar with uh, the Waldo cartoon where he's sitting in a bar drinking and he looks fucking depressed as hell. And he says, everybody asks, where's Waldo? But nobody asks, how's Waldo? I think that's the caption. I hope I'm not butchering it. Um you know, and, and people have tried to play off the Where's Waldo thing just because it's like a catchy phrase, an easy caption, really simple to draw. And my f my favorite cartoon I've drawn is a Waldo cartoon. And the way it, uh, I'll explain it, it's, it's Waldo and his girlfriend, uh, just a plain girlfriend, not Waldina, <laughs> just some plain girlfriend he, he's sitting on the couch and she is lying on the couch with her head in his lap and she's like reading a book, but she reaches her arm to Waldo because Waldo is looking off into the distance, kind of dazed. 
and um, not really connecting with her on the couch. And the caption she says is, "Hey, where's my Waldo? Where? <laughs> hey, where's my Waldo?" <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think I played with other ideas of like, where did my Waldo go, or um, where you know, wh- where are you? What, what you know? But it's playing off that. You know, it, it was this little tiny thing of of seeing. I don't know where I saw it. I can't pinpoint where I've seen it, but it's like, yeah, sometimes you just glaze off and somebody has to snap you back into reality. And they're always like, hey, where'd you go for that weird moment? You know, Um, I think they even say it on Fleabag now, Fleabag season two. He's like, why are you looking at the camera? Where'd you go? Um, And so it felt like a breakthrough for me because it was like this very modern thing that I don't think people said, hey, where'd you go back in the 90s the same way they do it now. Um, and I was so happy to have like a, fi- a new Waldo cartoon um, that nobody else had thought of before. Uh, and it's so short, it's so simple, but I think millennials in this generation knows exactly what that is. Um so yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite cartoons, and a lot of people have responded to it. And I've sold a few prints of it, actually. A lot of people request it. So um, yeah, I've included it in my uh, best of uh, 2017 zine, and I'm really proud of it. And you know, s- sometimes you look at old cartoons and you're like, I need to go back and redraw it. And I definitely feel about this the same with this cartoon. I'm like, I kind of want to go back and redraw it, but. We make so many cartoons that we're like, you know what? It better it it probably serves as a as a better um, time capsule now. So I like right. that it exists in the style it is, as flawed as I might think it is now. Yeah, and I think that's also another <laughs> very you know uh, central point, right, to the artist's journey is just letting things go. I think it was like Oscar Wilde totally. said that art is never finished; it is merely abandoned. So in a way, oh. you know, it is captured in a moment in time that you know it captured how you were feeling and what you were going through so i think for listeners out there we'll definitely link to the waldo cartoon it's very funny um the expression that jeremy drew is absolutely priceless uh, <laughs> i definitely want to you know uh make sure we're ending on on i think a note for our listeners out there is you know if there's one piece of advice i think you could give to a lot of the visual artists out there with illustration comics so forth you know, what would that be, right? Where you are now and your, the journey you've gone through, what is like the one advice you wish you told your younger self? Mm. Wish I told my younger self. Huh, okay. Uh, you know what? I always say I wish, I wish someone when I was young would just tell me, you're doing fine, you're okay. That would have been so nice to hear. <laughs> Just like, and when I did, like, I would get it here and there, and it felt fantastic. I didn't need people to say, you're great, you're, you're absolutely amazing. I didn't need anyone to say, you're my favorite cartoonist. I just needed someone older than me to say you're doing okay and I don't know how that's gonna feel to anyone on the podcast because I don't know you um listening to the podcast but you are doing okay you're fine you just keep doing your work and you'll be great don't worry about it too I if you're actually worrying about it that much you're probably better off than the people who aren't worrying at all. Um, so I would say just, you're fine. You're doing great. You're, you're, yeah, you're okay. I love that. (laughs) You're fine. You're doing great. I love that. And I think that's the thing, right? Is that we live in such a, such a, such an age of an anxiety. And it's, I think so understandable for people to feel like, Oh, nothing ever matters. But we all need mm. to hear that. And I think, you know, that's such a heartfelt, I think, message, you know, mm. to broadcast out there. So thank you for sharing <laughs> that. I am definitely going to. Get yeah, I, I think that. it's because, you know, we were 20 year old nothings and we thought we should be somethings. 
and it's just hard to not be anything. Uh, and, and, and there's a lot of 20 year olds who just suck and it sucks to hear it, but you do. I definitely did when I was 20, you know, there's looking back, I was like, yeah, there's, there really was no reason for women to be that interested in me as a 20, 21 year old. (laughs) It like, there's no reason. So knowing if you can be self-aware that you suck that's fantastic cuz really you shouldn't really you know be anything until you're 25 26 maybe it, you a lot of people don't really get into their role until they're 30 so don't worry about it yeah let your 20s suck let your 20s uh, be garbage <laughs> <laughs> be poor be as poor as you can be and still be able to survive. Yeah. That's really it. Find milk crates and survive. Yes, that's yeah. the that's the goal. Uh, that is a great word of wisdom for sure to end on. Now, Jeremy, uh, are there any projects or anything that you want to plug? Anything? Anything you yes. want to plug for the for the, our listeners? Most definitely, I have a fantastic uh, art show featuring. Um, Eight other, nine other uh, New Yorker cartoonists who are all Asian. It's going to be held at Pearl River Mart, which is a home goods store for uh, if you want Chinese home goods. They have a gallery space above their store, and there's going to be uh, myself, Alice Chang, Amy Huang, Maddie Dai, Colin Tom, Hartley Lin, Evan Lian, uh, and Christine Mi. And then there's also one special mystery cartoonist who will be joining us hopefully which is fantastic i'll yeah uh if if you follow me on instagram and twitter i'll be announcing who that mystery cartoonist is once we get all the details sorted out but that's going to be uh opening october 4th with our reception on the 11th of october that's going to run all the way through uh january 2020 so if you're in new york for christmas please come through and Say hello to our gallery. See a lot of art that's going to be hanging. It's going to be 70 works of cartoons plus installations and a mural and special events throughout the season as well. Um, we're very excited for this show. I'm, cur- I'm curating it with Amy, and we're just having a ball putting it together, and all the cartoonists are super excited. So please come out for that. Amazing. And we'll be sure to link to that. Uh, and be sure, obviously, to follow Jeremy on social media. Speaking of, Jeremy, where can we find you on social media? Yeah, my my Twitter handle is Jeremy Wins. Um, it sounds like my name, Jeremy Nguyen, but it's, uh, it's J-E-R-E-M-Y-W-I-N-S. Um, I always tell people that I, if I was a character on Mortal Kombat and I kick somebody's ass, then Jeremy Wins. Um, <laughs> it's so <laughs> stupid, but that's just like the easiest way to boil it down. Um, so yeah, Jeremy wins on Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah, hit me up. Sounds good. And for sure, we'll link to that in the show notes, everyone listening. Uh, Jeremy Newen, this has been such a great conversation. I've so much enjoyed learning about your artistic journey and I did not know about a lot of the initial struggles, which I think is <laughs> very illuminating and just all the more respect to where you are now and the success you've hit. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, be sure to follow Jeremy on Insta. Obviously, we'll link to the show and everything else uh, that's coming up at the market uh, in New York. Be sure to swing by if you're in town. Jeremy, thank you again. And awesome. Yeah, thank you so much, Irving. Of course. And until next time, uh, this is the Brave Maker Podcast. And thank you. BraveMaker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Thanks for listening to the BraveMaker podcast. Subscribe, give us a rating, and share with a friend.